Hello, and welcome to The Taproot, the podcast that digs beneath the surface to understand how scientific publications are created. In each episode, we take a paper from the literature and talk about the story behind the science with one of the authors. I'm Liz Haswell. And I'm Ivan Baxter. And in this episode, we talk to Jose Deneni, a staff member at the Carnegie Institute for Sciences in Palo Alto, California. We discuss a recent paper that describes a novel system for imaging root growth that balances the need for visualization with the need for more physiological growth conditions. We get into all the things that need to happen to make a new technology come to life. The paper is Ray and Alvarez et al. Glowroots, an imaging platform enabling multidimensional characterization of soil-grown root systems, published in 2015. And with that, let's get to the interview. Okay, so today's guest, Jose Dinani, uh, grew up in the San Fernando Valley. He got his first degree, his bachelor's in science, from UC Berkeley and was already starting uh, to work on plants. Then he got his PhD at UC San Diego, working with Detlef Weigel and Marty Yanofsky. Uh, and then from there, went on to do a postdoc with Phil Benfi at Duke. Pretty quickly after that, um, Jose established his independent lab in Singapore at the Tomasic. Am I saying that right? Yeah, Tomasic. Tomasic Life Sciences Laboratory, and um, stayed there f- until 2011 when he moved to the Carnegie Institution for Science uh, at Stanford. Uh, so uh, since he's been there, he has just risen like a shooting star. He's a member of the Science Policy Committee for ASPB, a member of the uh, North American Arabidopsis Steering Committee. He's a monitoring editor for plant physiology and um, is an HHMI Simmons faculty scholar. So welcome to the Taproot, Jose. Thank you. It's great to be here. Would you be willing just to give us a quick summary of, of today's paper? Yes. So we've been studying roots uh, for about 10 years now, and we started our studies uh, using very uh, simple media in order to understand how plants respond to stressful changes in their environments. We wanted to develop a system that would allow us to move beyond studying seedling stage roots and start studying roots in a soil-like environment where we could have uh, greater uh, physiological relevance in terms of studying both responses to drought and salinity. And so we developed a system based on the growth of plants in uh, thin sheets of soil called rhizotrons, and we engineered the plants to express the firefly enzyme luciferase, which allowed us to visualize where these roots were in those sheets of soil. In the uh, eLife paper, we uh, essentially uh, define how we use this method to visualize roots uh, over uh, time. And we can study plants from uh, basically germination to senescence. And we study how root systems vary across different genotypes, how plants respond to abiotic stresses such as low phosphorus and low uh, and water deficit. And we also uh, explore how this method can be used to visualize root systems in tomato and brachypodium as well. 
So it's such a great paper. I mean, I remember many, many times there was this sort of running joke in the Arabidopsis community where somebody would say in a talk, like, here are some seedlings growing on their native environment, uh, MS media. <laughs> right? Yes. Um, and so what I think is great is how now nobody says that anymore because there are now all these other systems in which to study how roots grow, right? We were interested in, in developing a method that would allow us to really take advantage of all of the genetic resources that are available in Arabidopsis um, and also give us an opportunity to start studying these root systems uh, under conditions that are, are more physiologically relevant. Yeah, so maybe you can talk a little bit, a little, just a little bit more about those differences. So, hmm. um, I mean, I certainly have a lot of thoughts about a root growing in light where half of it is exposed to air and half of it is exposed to um, a solid auger media and how that might differ from soil. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? So something that is, is very important to the way that plants interact with their environments and particularly how they interact with the availability of water um, is that plants uh, utilize a lot of water uh, and, and water is lost um, from the plants through transpiration. And, and the reason that uh, water leaves the, the shoot system to the atmosphere is a, a difference uh, in the, the free energy of water between um, the, the water that's in the leaf and the water that's in the atmosphere. When you grow a seedling in a, a sealed petri dish, uh, that, that uh, differential in, in water potential is, is lost. And so many of the mechanisms that plants use to regulate how much water they use in the environment and how much water they lose to the environment, um, those mechanisms don't really function uh, in a petri dish. Um, and so it was really, you know, as, as I transitioned from being what I would consider a developmental biologist, where I was really interested in understanding sort of regulatory networks that help to generate form, and as I started becoming more interested in function, it became more and more important that I start studying the organism under conditions where all of these adaptive responses that the plants have would actually have meaning and would actually perform important functions that help the plant survive. And so uh, when I brought the lab uh, from Singapore uh, to the US, I was really inspired by the um, culture of developing experimental systems at Carnegie. And I started to think about, you know, how might I create a growth condition where I can uh, maintain physiological significance, maintain this connection between the soil, plant, and atmosphere, um, but also uh, preserve my ability to, to see where these roots are and study the temporal dynamics of growth regulation, which I knew to be very important as a developmental biologist. Liz, Liz talks about that, the joke that people used to say about the native uh, environment being the Petri dish. And, and I know I was really frustrated around the time that, that we were all leaving our postdocs by uh, the blowback we would get uh, for how noisy soil-based assays in Arabidopsis were um, mm. <laughs> compared to plates, whereas it, was, it just wasn't that relevant. And so I think there was this, this feeling over the last 10 years that we needed, especially as, as Jose mentioned, the, you know, function being so important that we needed to get into this, this soil system. So um, 
but I, that's I think that's probably a good transition. So, so you were you were you had started your lab in Singapore and you were doing mostly plate-based assays, and you moved to the Carnegie, and that was when the idea for this really took off. Some sometimes the inspiration for these things comes about, you know, when you give a seminar somewhere, and and you get one of those questions that really digs at you, and you know sometimes we we hear the questions and we can dismiss them or or uh, consider them irrelevant, but you know if you, it's the questions that sort of linger that I think help you to open your eyes to considering certain things. So I I was at a meeting in. Del Mar and Paul Schulze-Lefert had asked a very simple question. You know, we had we had started to use uh, time-lapse imaging to visualize how roots um, respond to high salinity, and we could see these very dynamic and complex responses. Um, and he asked a simple question: simple question, uh, do these things actually happen in soil? <laughs> and I I I didn't know how to answer the question because. Um, I didn't know if they happened in soil. Uh, I guess I was assuming that they they were happening in soil. But even if I wanted to test it, I didn't really have any good ways of of testing whether it happened in soil. And so, you know, at one point, I think, you know, just in, you know, uh, you know, an afternoon I had uh, treated some plants growing in in pots uh, with high salinity and had dug them out and washed them out. I could see that you know some attributes of of what we were seeing in plates was happening in soil, but all of the temporal dynamics was completely lost because we had to dig it out. And so when I came to Carnegie, um, I had uh, I was going to apply for a, a Beckman Fellowship, and part of that fellowship application is that you want to propose um, sort of new technology. They're interested in in kind of engineering solutions in biology. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to solve this challenge of visualizing root growth in soil, how am I going to do that? And and one of the sort of um, papers that was somewhat inspiring in this uh, in this direction was a paper from Winslow Briggs, where he had showed uh, he had shown that roots can act as fiber optic cables. So basically, if you shine light on the top of a shoot, the uh, light can pass through the shoot into the roots. And a certain amount of those photons end up at the root tips. Wow! So in, initially, I thought, well, what if we put a plant in soil and then shine like massive amounts of light onto the shoot, and then somehow have a camera that could could capture the light that enters into the root system through the fiber optic um, sort of properties? Um, so I was thinking about that for a little bit, and I, I thought there be, might be a lot of challenges in terms of limiting that light leakage into the, the sheet of soil itself. So then I thought, well, why not just make the roots make light themselves? And I had known that um, uh, my postdoctoral advisor, Philip Benfee, had uh, done had started to use luciferase as a, as a very effective system for looking at um, lateral root patterning. Um, and there were a, a number of sort of luciferase lines that it, the community had generated. So I thought, um, you know, let's let's test this. So I had submitted the fellowship application, and it was a two-round uh, sort of thing. They they have a pre-application, and then they they invite you for the full application, and that was several months after I had submitted the pre-application. And so I thought, well, darn! Uh, 
if I get invited for the full application, I won't have any data to actually show that this method works. So then I quickly emailed uh, Stacy Harmer at UC Davis uh, to ask her for her brightest luciferase line. And so she sent that over to me. And, you know, I went to Home Depot, um, tap plastics, bought a bunch of sheets of, of, of acrylic and started, um, you know, sort of sawing and hammering away to build these initial rhizotrons and, and, and grew some of the, the, the seeds that Stacy had sent and then went over to the medical school where they have a lot of luciferase imaging systems to look at um, sort of mouse, uh, mouse biology, mammalian biology. And then I, you know, I put the plants in and I could, I remember those, you know, first few images where we, we could, you know, see these really extensive root systems in these sheets of soil. And at that point I knew um, we were onto something uh, because it was, it was in some ways a lot easier than I thought it would be. The results were much um, uh, sort of more uh, beautiful and easy to analyze than I thought they'd be. And the, the, the level of complexity uh, that we could observe in the root system was 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 just uh, was astounding. You've had this like amazing revelation of, and and part of that I th this is one of those like this feels like one of those perfect timing things like, and also you were in a rabbit office, so you literally could ask Stacy Harmer for these seeds that have really bright and get them, and within a couple weeks you're actually doing this sort of prototyping experiment. Um, that's you know that it's you know, those those are things that are like part of the system and part of just being in a good network and knowing that Stacy had those seeds kind of thing. Absolutely. So you know we we also did some experiments in uh, Brachypodium tomato and and um, in Zeteria, and those took at least half a year to a year to really prepare the materials and get them ready on time and. If I had to uh, try to convince someone to generate that reporter, uh, that reporter line in a species outside of Arabidopsis without any of the preliminary data that I had, um, I, I don't think people would have been as willing. But you know, I, I had shared some of the data we were getting with John Vogel, and the moment he saw the images, he knew that it would be uh, a very useful resource to have for Brachypodium. And I also remember uh, taking those initial images of Arabidopsis and, and sharing them with Tom Brutnell uh, when uh, there was a DOE call to uh, uh, study um, sort of stress responses in, in plants. And immediately that led to uh, a long-standing uh, collaboration that we've had with Tom as, as well as with um, uh, you, Ivan. And oh, me? <laughs> <laughs> so... You know that 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 having that 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 initial bit of data really um, opened a lot of uh, doors and op uh, and and made uh, the system, um, I think, as 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 broadly su successful uh, as it as it has been. It also helped to to secure funds at, at Carnegie to actually build a system uh, where we could do in-house imaging rather than having to go to the medical school. So, so did you get that the Beckman Fellowship? No. <laughs> but so see, so there's the there's the thing though. Like people hate yeah. writing grants, and I, you know, I am, you know, I, I understand that perspective. But boy, does it help you focus your thinking and make you think big, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, it was, uh, and and that you know that 
that need to sort of say, well, you know, they're going to want to see some preliminary data or they're, you know, because the, the idea is kind of, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit kooky. Um, it's a bit, you know, st strange. It's um, not, not, uh, not necessarily the, the standard approach that, that, that people would, uh, would initially take. Um, and so I, I, I knew we needed some preliminary data if we were going to uh, make it work. And so even though it didn't, we didn't get the funding, yeah, absolutely, having to go through that process of, of developing an idea, refining it, testing it, and getting it to the point that it is a viable project uh, was was definitely worthwhile. Those few images that you had were so nucleating. Like having this, like this is going, this is going to work, even though it's incredibly rudimentary. And I and I don't think I even appreciated when we were writing the grant five years ago that the you know like that that was like one of your very few <laughs> images that you had. Yeah. Um, but that image was it, it incredibly compelling on the grant page, I can say, as someone who didn't actually put it in there. Um, it, but it was like, wow, that's that's really cool. And I think getting to that, th there is promise here. Because I think, you know, I look at the paper and figure, figure one, and the system that you actually built is so much more complex. And designed and in and, and was it so i guess my question is once you had those images was this system that you're showing in the paper this complicated multi images and all the the sliding uh rhizotrons is that all that was the next step basically is that you you had to get enough funds to build that system but once you knew that this was going to work that's where you were going with it so I, I think at at the point of conception of, of, of sort of the, the the technology, right? We had really um, uh, sort of hokey hokey rhizotrons, you know, bolted together uh, with sort of steel bolts. Um, it really wasn't a system that uh, I would say uh, was 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 ready for prime time, except for the type of results that we could get. And, and so, you know, I want to give a lot of credit to um, a former postdoc, Ruben Rayon Alvarez, who also looked at those images and, and, and knew that this was a system that he wanted to help basically bring to prime time. So he um, had pre previously done a lot of research on uh, physiology and uh, studying uh, responses to or, or how plants uh, transport iron. Uh, in the in the vascular systems, and so he had an appreciation for both, you know, why we would want to spend all of this time to create a more physiologically relevant experimental condition, um, but he was also looking then for for training in in how to uh, how to utilize uh, imaging technology, and he'd known that Carnegie is is a great place uh, to be able to do that with you know people like um, David Earhart um, around here. So it was. Uh, it was having those initial images, being able to recruit Ruben uh, to uh, move the system forward, that then things started started to sort of um, become more sophisticated. So the, one of the first things that uh, we did was to contract out with a, a company, uh, Bioimaging Solutions, to uh, develop an imaging, um, uh, an imaging device that would have uh, two cameras so that we could take high resolution uh, images of the root systems uh, over time. Uh, and then Ruben started to work on 
crafting the sort of the, the 1.0 version of the Rhizotron. And so, you know, going through the, 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 the tap plastics catalog, uh, identifying all the different, you know, thicknesses of, of plastic, different types. So, you know, finding, finding the different places that would, would make the different parts of the Rhizotron uh, in a very sort of standard manner, um, building the boxes that would hold the Rhizotrons um, so that you can have a very uniform environment um, and figuring out how to germinate the seeds so that the seedlings didn't dry out uh, and you know, figuring out how, out how to add the luciferin, when to add the luciferin, when to image. Um, it was, you know, every single step, uh, there was, you know, a month or, or weeks where we were testing out a couple of different options to, to make sure that what, what we had was optimized. So something I, I, I hadn't touched on at all, but is actually, is actually quite important, um, is the, the quantitation of the data. So yeah. we had... Can I ask, so did you know when you started that you were going to need to develop this software, or was that something you sort of realized later? Well, this is this is where having people in your lab with different interests really helps because I I must admit I think I I underestimated um, the utility of having uh, some custom software uh, to to analyze our images. So. Uh, I had known, you know, I had used ImageJ quite a bit to, to quantify uh, images of root systems, and I had done some macro writing myself to, to develop custom scripts to, to analyze images. And so I thought we could basically do it on our, our own. Um, if anyone's met Ruben, he's, you know, a very charismatic person, and he had met um, Guillaume Lobet at a meeting. Uh, Guillaume uh, is uh, really uh, an expert craftsman at at developing um, software packages for, for for analyzing root systems and for for modeling uh, the 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 data under sort of developing physiological models for that data, and Ruben had met him and started a conversation about developing a software package that would uh, complement um, the Glow root system. And so, in, you know, initially I was uh, honestly a little lukewarm, didn't really know how useful it would be, and and also how much of a distraction it would be because uh, you know as as you're as a, as a pi you're you know you're, you're you're seeing the projects in the lab and you're advising people and it, there's always a balance of of you know testing different things out and and focusing on one thing and you know the more things you test out the the longer it takes to get any one thing done and so i i was um, starting to get a little bit antsy in terms of getting this initial um, paper out on the method. Um, but in the end, the, the interactions that uh, Ruben had with Guillaume and also uh, in general that our lab has had with Guillaume have, have been very fruitful. And I think the, the development of, of what they ultimately called Gloria for the Glow Roots Image Analysis software has been um, really great because you know, now we can generate large amounts of data and in a somewhat automated fashion, uh, get quantitative results from from those images. And so, you know, I always like to say, you know, when I present the work on uh, on Glow Roots, you know, it all we have are pretty pictures until we quantify it. 
um, and, and until we actually analyze the, the variation in root system architecture that we observe um, between genotypes and between conditions. It's not enough to just show uh, a nice picture. Absolutely. Says the, says the journal editor. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you supposed to sing the name of the software? I mean... Gloria. Yes, that's so great. All the names in here are just adorable, I have to say. Glow root, Gloria, it's wonderful. Glowbot, yeah. Yep, very good. So, so Jose, I think I, I wanted to ask you a question sort of philosophically, because obviously you, this was, this. I don't think it's an understatement to say that this was not cheap <laughs> to go through this whole process. Uh, not only in just, you know, contracting with engineering firms but people time yes. um, and looking at the sort of the funding acknowledgments in the paper uh, you know some of it uh, clearly came from grants but I think the majority probably came from from startup funds or or, or or were these funds that Carnegie invested in 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 the project yes yeah, so uh, for example Ruben was paid through uh, the Carnegie endowment so that's how his salary was covered and the initial um, uh, Glow One system that we called it uh, was uh, fully funded by, yeah, essentially startup funds from, from Carnegie. And, you know, I really have to credit Wolf Frommer for, you know, again, seeing these initial images that we were getting and, and thinking, yes, I, I, I see the promise of that. And, you know, I remember it was basically at a dinner where we were hosting um, Joanne Corey. And so we were sitting next to each other and we were talking about the system and you know what were my plans and he said okay let's fund it and i was like wow that was it was uh it, it, i think an incredible insight on his part but he, he uh, you know his his ultimate mission you know having hired me was to make sure that i could be as successful as possible and so it was knowing when and where to target funds to to, to see that um that success, you know, uh, become realized. Yeah, uh, I mean, that I think is one of the, you know, is one of the key features of a, of a, of, you know, sort of a, you know, scientific visionary, and that that's someone I would definitely, I definitely place, you know, Wolf uh, as as one of the, the the greatest, you know, scientific visionaries that that we have in our field right now. I think that's such an important point. One one thing that a scientific leader does is not dismiss things as like, well, that's just accepted in the field, right? Like that's something mm -hmm. that's, I, I think it's so easy to do, right? Well, that's just how, you know, we grow seedlings on this transparent auger in a, in a highly humid condition and that's just how we do it. And so like, let's just think of the experiments we can do in the constraints of that system because that's what everybody does. But being able to see the value of putting sounds like about four years of solid work and like Ivan suggests quite a bit of cash into saying actually that's not enough to answer the questions mm -hmm. we want to answer that really does require vision I think that's super cool well, it requires vision and it requires um, you know getting out of your comfort zone but it requires also talking to people who have different different um, Skills viewpoints sense. so yeah so you know I think it was really great um, you know, I think, you know, Liz, also you've, you've done this as well in, in terms of, you know, changing fields and having those moments where you're really the newbie to that field and you come in, um, in some ways with, 
without a lot of the um, uh, preconceptions that other people have in the field, but yet you can also, um, you, you're, you're, you're placed off balance to some extent because you have to start to understand why those concepts are present within the field. And so some of them, you know, you can see as being quite valuable and, and important, such as, you know, physi physiological relevance of experimental conditions. And others, you can say, well, you know, fine, you're using physiologically relevant conditions, but you don't know anything about temporal dynamics of the process and growth. And so you can, you can bring in what you've learned and, and also learn what, what the field has to offer. So I think, you know, it's, it's great to be able to, to change fields, do new things, and um, I think that, that benefits everyone. So you know, I think we should really, I don't know if there are ways of encouraging this more um, in terms of people sort of shifting between different, you know, areas uh, of research, but uh, it, it should be encouraged. So like, you know, grant, grant reviews, rather than seeing it as a, as a negative when someone wants to start, you know, asking new questions within their field, it, it should be strongly encouraged. I agree with that. And you might not be surprised to hear I have an opinion about this. <laughs> the other thing <laughs> that I think we really need to do to help promote field switching is to stop rewarding people who move through stages quickly. Right. That rules out a lot of people who did something completely new from their PhD because they mm. didn't, they, well, it takes us a while to get our footing. So I think these, these types of awards that really reward people who are sort of transitioning quickly from PhD to postdoc to full scientist and like getting things done, you know, before under 40 or whatever like I think those that's fine but what you're really doing is encouraging people to stay where they are where they're already successful and just keep doing the same stuff which there's yes. not to mention not to mention not have a family not to mention not have a family <laughs> yes that's also true and, or to take any time off right so, so I, I, I love what you're saying about trying to think of ways to promote field switching. I know when we were at the Arabidopsis meeting at the URM uh, get together, you discussed being encouraged as a PhD student when you were looking for your postdoc to really think a little bit outside the Maristem box. And I, you know, I think that was really a powerful thing to say to young people as they try to think about where to go next. Maybe, maybe the safest thing isn't the most invigorating or going to be the most impactful thing necessarily. Yeah, well, you know, I think there, there, you know, one could define a few moments that really played an important role in one's trajectory. And it was, you know, I remember very clearly, it was a, a lunchtime discussion with Jennifer Nemhauser. Uh, she was a postdoc in Joanne Corey's group. And I was sort of listing off the different labs that I was visiting for, um, where I was considering doing a postdoc. And, you know, she, she just said, well, why don't you get out of your comfort zone? <laughs> and... Uh, it was, she was absolutely right. Now, you know, uh, is root development that different from shoot development? I don't know. But one thing it does open is, you know, you can't really study roots without studying the environment. It's, it's, it's not possible. There is such a strong influence of the environment on roots that it, 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 it's ingrained in every, every question that, that you can ask um, in, in that system. And so as a consequence, you really, you really have to start thinking of, of you know, the environment and, and physiology, not in some ways as a, as a distraction or something that you want to avoid, 
but but something that you really need to incorporate uh, in, in into your understanding of the system, which is very different than you know like flower development, Schutmer stem development, where you might be trying to create that perfect environmental condition where nothing is changing, so that you can study that you know very complex developmental process in 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 isolation. Well, that seems like a great place to end. Jose, this was awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it. Yeah. So where can people find you online if they want to get in contact with you? So my Twitter handle is at Jose Dinany. That's J-O-S-E-D-I-N-N-E-N-Y. And that's probably the best place to find me. You can also find my website through, through the Twitter website. And Liz, how can people find you? Uh, please contact me through Twitter also. My Twitter handle is at eHaswell. And people can find me on Twitter at Baxter Twee. That's Baxter T-W-I. And if you want to email Liz and I about uh, the podcast. Or anything else. We have a, or anything else. Uh, we have uh, an email address. Uh, it's taproot at plantae.org. If you liked listening to The Taproot, please take the time to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes as it helps other listeners find the podcast. We're also considering adding a bonus wrap-up episode to this first season that addresses questions from you, the audience, and might include a few little snippets from our blooper reel. If you have any questions, please send them to our email address, taproot.plante.org, or tweet at us. The Taproot is produced by the American Society of Plant Biologists and the Plant Day website. Our producers are Melanie Binder and Mary Williams. And The Taproot is edited by Tasneem Bufafel. We thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>